Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solver um, with my monthly podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care, and we're going to talk about a pretty interesting topic today. Uh, our, our guest is Kai Young, who's a who's a doctor, doctor. He's a PharmD and a PhD, and he's one of the winners of the Patient Access Network Foundation's recent cost-sharing research challenge. So that's a mouthful, but what it means is there were people who were competing to do really good uh, research in the area of reducing healthcare costs. And Kai, uh, at the time that he did this research, was uh, working at the University of Washington's Pharmaceutical Outcomes Research and Policy Program in Seattle. Um, but he has since moved to Kaiser Permanente's Washington Research Institute, which is also in Seattle. And his paper is titled Impact of a Value-Based Formulary in Three Chronic Disease Cohorts. So congratulations, Kai, on winning the challenge, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pat. So I thought we'd start out with some basics. Um, Can you tell us exactly what a value-based formulary is? So that's the first part of the question. And the second part is, how do you actually go about constructing one? That's a great question. So a value-based formulary, as opposed to a traditional cost-based formulary, which is the typical kind of formulary that we have in the United States, um, designed by health plans and by PBMs or pharmacy benefits managers, which base the cost sharing of the drug on the cost of the medication. In contrast to that, a value-based formulary is an approach to designing a drug formulary or aligning cost sharing um, for medications based on the value that those drugs provide um, to the patient and to the plan. Um, And when we use the term value here, we mean very specifically um, this notion of cost relative to benefit, right? Not just uh, outright cost, but cost relative to the clinical uh, benefit that it brings to the patient, right? And, And the way that we measure value is by using this metric known as cost effectiveness analysis, which is perhaps the most commonly used method for assessing the value of medications globally. And as the name implies, cost effectiveness, uh, there's two components, again, this notion of cost relative to the benefit that a drug brings. And how this works is essentially you um, come up with this, these economic models that have as its output um, this number that represents um, how much additional uh, dollars that it would take to um, result in a certain additional unit of outcome, whether it be additional full quality year of life or some other um, outcome, such as preventing a heart attack. And then by using this metric, this metric was applied across the board for um, the vast majority of drugs that went into this formula. So thousands of medications um, were subject to this metric and then re reassigned the medications to the cost sharing tiers based on that. So meaning So that- so let me stop you there because you've raised a, an interesting question. Did each of these drugs or each category of drug um, have its own cost effectiveness effectiveness um, economic model run? So each one kind of generates a 
a, a different number to be applied to create the formulary. I mean, these these are formularies that health plans are doing uh, on behalf of their on behalf of their employer customers. Um, how, it, it sounds like a lot of work. How how is Absolutely. it actually being done? The mechanics of how it's done. Absolutely, and 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 I'll I'll give you a fairly brief answer because um, we can have a very robust discussion just on this topic alone, um, because I think this is a very innovative piece of this work. But I'll first uh, start off by saying that I'll refer uh, you and the audience to um, a paper that came out in the Journal for Managed Care, especially pharmacy, in 20, April of 2015, which describes the design and implementation of this value-based formulary in detail, in contrast to this paper, which is really about the uh, measurement of what happened in these chronic disease states. Um, uh, and and are so, you, were you involved in that paper, Kai? Yes, I was. Okay. So, so in essence, um, how again yes it, it is a, a whole lot of work to set up um and how it is done is um you uh get available evidence from a variety of sources for manufacturer submitted models from the tufts university cost effectiveness analysis registry from other health technology assessment organization um, publicly available um, estimates of cost effectiveness um, and in cases where none of this information is sufficiently transparent or applicable to the particular population this is that this was performed in, which is Premier Blue Cross, which is the largest nonprofit health plan in Washington State. Um, then Premier actually had a pharmacist trained in economic analysis to build their own models. And then I'll, again, I'll refer the audience to the fuller description of, of this, how this was set up in the, in the uh, article that I, that I referenced, but in essence, that's, that's, that's how it was done. So, it sounds like hours and hours and hours of work, and of course that translates into money too. But um, and we'll come back to that at the end. But um, I just wanted to ask you whether, when these analyses are done, are they done for example, let's take diabetes? Are they done for all the oral diabetes drugs, of which there are many different classes of drugs, or are they done within the individual drug classes? Because the way you would set up your cost sharing, I assume, would be by individual classes. So if you have a DPP-4 inhibitor, you would put, uh, you know, the most cost-effective, most valuable, right, uh, um, drug in, in the lower tier and then take the other drugs and put them in a higher tier. So just help us understand, is it across all the oral agents or is it, in fact, by individual drug category? And And does this mean that you might have a mixture of both cost, um, have a mixture of both copay and coinsurance, uh, because I would think with a coinsurance model it wouldn't work very well. So that was that was a lot of stuff. But tell tell me what you yeah. think about that. Sure, those I think those are great questions. Um, I try to my best to answer them. Yeah, so um, it is done across the board for all medications, and that's one of the advantages of using a uniform metric. The, the metric that you use that we use, I should mention, is um, called uh, incremental cost effectiveness ratio, where the numerator is that cost component and its ratio of cost relative to the effect. And the effect that we measure is known as a quality adjusted life year that allows you to estimate across the board for all different therapeutic classes. So not just diabetes medications, but hypertension, hyperlipidemia, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple, anything you can mention can much of that uh, uh, the benefits of that drug can be captured within this uh, broad framework of um, a cost per quality adjusted life here. 
Um, and so in that case, then, you know, you are able to make um, essentially resource allocation decisions, not only within a certain drug class, but across different classes. So it may be that a certain drug class, all the drug medications might be of lower value and in a across a different class of medications, th those drugs may be all of high value and you're able to um, sh shift cost share relative to one another across classes. That's number one. Number two is the, the other advantage of this explicit estimate of, of, of uh, value for these medications is, you're right, you can get at a much higher resolution approach of, of cost sharing where you can look at, for example, you, you know, you mentioned the diabetes class. So if you're thinking about the newest classes, the SGLT2s, you know, there's one um, that where there's more evidence of uh, the empagliflozin relative to the other two medications that are in a class in terms of preventing um, cardiovascular uh, risk, right? Um, uh, so, or, uh, so in that case, then you can have, um, this would potentially be reflected in the value of that estimate of that medication, and you can uh, more favorably tier that medication relative to the others. Um, so hopefully that answers some of your questions there. Yeah, it does, and it's fascinating, and this may be something you'll look at in the future, because as you're, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, doctors tend to prescribe uh, pretty similarly. They aren't, they, they don't tend to, to um, they get to know a drug and they like that drug and, and, they, and that's what they tend to prescribe. Um, it seems like either the doctors or the patients could have some, could get a little shaken up uh, if it turns out that their favorite way of prescribing has has ended up all in the non-valued non, non category. Did you get any feedback during the course of the study from any of the clinicians or any of the any of the patients, or um, is there any way of assessing how disruptive this was for their practice? Yeah, I think those are all great questions, and I'll answer in a sort of threefold response. Um, so, so one is um, you are correct in saying that you know you don't want to make a system so draconian such that it rubs patients and physicians in the wrong way and discourages patients from being on medications altogether for example. Um, so in that case, that is why the way that this formulary particularly was set up was to use cost effectiveness analysis, but to use it as a, a slight financial incentive, a slight nudge. Um, but when you look at, in, I, th I believe it was in table one where we published the um, co-payment tiers for, the, for, for this value-based formula, it was arranged between zero and $100, which is uh, not nearly as dramatic as having, for example, a coinsurance uh, where you might see, you know, a couple thousand dollars, you know, patient out-of-pocket costs, um, you know, per month for, for uh, you know, a high-cost specialty medication, for example. And so here, on the one hand, it's providing a slight nudge and a slight financial incentive um, and also a signal to the patient of value. It's, it's not making cost-sharing so onerous that it um, would potentially... Um, significantly detrimentally affect patients, one. Two is, um, yes, uh, Premier, while conducting this this implementation of this value-based formula, did conduct um, uh, interviews and surveys with um, patients and, in, in, and members in, in this plan. And essentially, when, once value was explained to the members, they viewed these, uh, these formularies as being um, 
in a favorable light. They were generally in favor of having, you know, a value-based approach to cost sharing. And three is, you know, so I'm both a PharmD and a PhD in pharmaceutical economics. And so putting on my PharmD hat, I would say that um, as a pharmacist, you know, when um, patients come to the pharmacy, that's when they generally realize that they're, they're, they're potentially drug that they were potentially on or were newly prescribed is associated with a higher cost share. And in that case, as a pharmacist, um, I feel it as part of my um, clinical duty then to um, be able to look up a therapeutic alternative for that medication and be able to make that recommendation both to the patient and the, and the prescriber to um, change over that medication. Oh, well, that's great. So, so I, unfortunately, I, I, not, everybody, not everybody ends up having access to <laughs> PharmDs and PhDs. <laughs> and uh, we recently published a paper on my blog by, uh, by a, a pharmacist who was talking about how difficult it is to actually do what you said Correct. in terms of both, you know, having the conversation with the patient, but also being able to actually reach out to the doctor and get the answer in a timely fashion. But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, what I wanted to ask you now is just briefly, um, tell us what was the question that you were trying to answer in the study and why you think it's important. And then let's dive into what you actually found. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's a great question in terms of why it's important. You know, um, I think, you know, everyone, knows, you know, I'm sorry, certainly, you know, and, and our audience knows that, you know, our pharmaceutical expenditures has been growing fairly dramatically in the recent past. And it's, and, you know, health plans are struggling to address this issue of, well, how do you cost share in that context intelligently? And how do you derive value from the increased spend? Right. And the premise of the value-based formulary is that we can derive higher value use of medications by using an explicit metric of, of value, i.e., in this case, cost-effectiveness analysis, to determine cost-sharing and therefore shift patient medication utilization behavior towards higher value use of medications. So the so the question in terms of the study is. Um, Something like this is is fairly innovative and novel. It certainly hasn't been tried before in this way of pairing cost effectiveness analysis with drug formulated tiering, um, especially in the U.S. setting. So the question that we wanted to answer is, what is the expected effect on patient utilization um, and also cost in these uh, three chronic disease states? Great. So we're going to dive into what you found, um, but I do want to remind the listeners that the um, that the incentives or disincentives were relatively small since the cost share ranged from, I think you said, zero to $100. And there are other plans that I've seen where the range between the low tier and the high tier is significantly more and much more onerous. So it's one thing I want people to keep in mind when they um, listen to uh, your results. So, so what did you find? So we looked at three uh, chronic disease cohorts, as I mentioned, the diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia cohorts. We looked at the um, effects of the value-based formulary on both on the structure of the cost sharing, how that changed cost sharing, and also on adherence and, uh, and in terms of um, expenditures. And essentially what we found was pretty, I think pretty interesting, at least for me, which is there was a significant reduction in member and overall expenditures of $5 and $9 per member per month, respectively in the diabetes cohort, 
Um, and in the hypertension cohort, there's a significant reduction on the member side of $4 and an increase in the plan side of $3. And there was no statistically significant effects on the hyperlipidemia cohort. Um, and, and there were no changes in adherence in bulk for all three disease states. Um, but that's, I think, not super surprising um, in that, you know, you have a formulary which is moving some drugs up in cost-sharing if they are low value, and some drugs down in cost-sharing if they are of higher value. So in bulk, on the net, if you measure adherence in the, across all those medications within a disease state, then you might not find a statistically significant change in adherence. But that's also a, a meaningful finding um, when paired with our exploratory analysis, which showed that especially in the diabetes and hyperlipidemia cohorts, you found that individuals were switching towards higher value medications. So while focalization was not significantly changed, you do see that within drugs that were of higher value, more individuals were switching from lower value into higher value drugs in those two cohorts. So it says that, um, that these incentives that are inherent in a value-based formulary were working, they seem to be working somewhat better for diabetes than for hyperlipidemia, but they, but they were, but you were seeing movement of drugs um, from, from away from low value towards high value. And that's a really good thing. Um, uh, but I was wondering if you could just say briefly why you think there was such a difference between the three conditions that it seemed to work best with, with, with diabetes and less well with hyperlipidemia. Are there any, uh, any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, um, we, we did think a lot about that. And I think that one of the things that you have to think about, um, especially if you're trying to design a drug formulary in a value-based context, is that the expected effect of the value-based formulary really de depends on four factors, right? One is the magnitude and the direction of the copayment changes. Two is the sensitivity of individuals to copayment changes. In economic terms, that's related to the price elasticity of demand. Um, point th factor three is really the incremental effect of the change in medication utilization on costs and outcomes at the individual level. And factor four is um, the number of individuals who are on high versus low value drugs prior to um, the implementation of the value-based formulary. And so there's a, a whole variety of different factors that can potentially affect uh, the expected outcomes that you would find. Now, um, I can say that, I believe in one of the tables, I believe one of the appendix tables uh, associated with, with the study, we illustrate how their, the value-based formulary differentially shifted um, drugs in the diabetes class in versus the hyperlipidemia class versus the hypertension class. So I believe in the, let's see, in the hypertension class, um, there was a shift towards uh, reductions, net reductions in cost sharing. In the diabetes class, in the hyperlipidemia class, I believe there was a net shift towards um, increases in cost sharing when you look across the board, average, uh, average cost shares. Um, so fundamentally, in that structural level, there are differences in the, in the cost shares. Um, then that gets filtered through this sensitivity of individuals to copayment changes. And we would, might hypothesize, based on our findings, that individuals um, were more 
price sensitive in the diabetes and hyperlipidemia class, and therefore you saw individuals switching to higher value medications there. So, um, of course, the bottom line is whether all of it, it, it's nice we're talking about the financial aspects of it, but if we're really going to talk about value, coming back to your, you know, the beginning of what is value, you know, it's cost over, over, over what the benefit is, uh, or your, in this case, clinical outcomes, or even medical expenditures, your non-pharmaceutical medical expenditures. Um, you didn't actually measure any of those in, in this study, so um, are you sure that the VBF really brought true value? Um, and if so, tell me why, I and mean, if not, what, what are your plans to get to that part of the question? Yeah, I think that's that's another great question and a certain limitation that I raised with this study. Um, so I think that you ought to consider this study in light of an entire body of literature um, that we have been developing on the value-based formulary. And so uh, two things. I'll, I'll refer first the audience to um, another paper that we published in the Journal of Medical Care. Um, I believe it came out either early 2017 or late 2016, um, which uh, illustrated the overall effect of this value-based formulary across all therapeutic classes um, on patient medication utilization behavior, um, on pharmacy costs, on medical costs, which were not measured in this uh, AJMC paper, as well as on proxies for health outcomes in terms of ER visits, hospitalizations, and office visits. And um, the summary, a broad summary, is that, again, it shifted this value-based formula across um, all therapeutic classes, shifted patients towards higher value use of medications, um, reduced um, pharmacy expenditures by, um, I believe it was $8 per member per month or 9%, but um, I'll refer the audience to the precise number in that article, and with no deleterious impacts on non-medication non-medication medical expenditures um, in terms of statistical significance or clinical or economic significance, and also no statistically significant effects, statistically significant or clinically significant effects on ER visits, hospitalizations, um, or office visits. And so in bulk, what you find is then uh, a formulary that shifted um, patients toward higher value, um, had found, found savings with no uh, effects on clinical outcomes. And I think that makes sense in the, in the sense of when you measure value as a ratio of cost versus benefit, right? And so when you shift individuals towards higher value, you might find either cost savings uh, without any effects on health, health, um, health outcomes, or you might find uh, no effects on, on costs and increases in health benefits or both. And in the case of this particular implementation, we found um, cost savings. Now, having had published that paper before this one, um, you know, we did this analysis, you know, based on a hypothesis-driven, you know, uh, framework, right? So we, um, given that we hadn't found no, no effect in the overall broad population in this smaller subgroup analysis of these three cohorts, we didn't expect to find an effect, and Given that we didn't have a hypothesis, we didn't decided not to uh, look for for health outcomes here. 
Well, fascinating discussion, fascinating approach. Um, when do you think um, this paper will be published, and or, or has it already been published, and um, and where can people find it? Um, yeah, so I believe it was just published um, earlier this month as a supplement in AJMC. Okay, so look for um, the paper by Kai Yun in AJMC in, uh, you think it, it was in, in April? And, um, and, and I think we can safely say that we should look forward to seeing more papers on this topic coming from you because it sounds like you're uh, on your way to becoming one of the uh, nation's experts in value-based formulary. So I want to thank you very much for joining us and wish you good luck in your new position and with the uh, research that you're going to do in the future. Great. Thank you, Pat.